Let's go to John chapter 17. We are working our way through the gospel according to John on Sunday mornings. I'd like to welcome you to our 150th installment. (laughs) Now, some people are going to think that was a joke. I had no idea we'd be four years into this. But we are in one of the greatest chapters. Every chapter is good. Every word of God is profitable. But we're finding our Lord here praying shortly before His betrayal. And as we've made our way through this prayer, we've seen how Jesus prayed for Himself. At the beginning of this prayer, He then prays for His disciples in the middle. And then at the end, we find Him praying for future believers. And we could rightly say, He's praying for us. We saw last week in verse 20, as we began the final section of this prayer, how Jesus' prayer has been answered. Because those first disciples were obedient to go into the world and preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ to the lost. They went forth trusting God with the truth of His Word. And listen, Jesus' prayer here, it's going to be answered until He returns. Because God blesses obedience. His truth cannot be stopped. The true church cannot be stopped. And God's ways always work. Well, that was the message last week. And really the charge was this. We just need to stay with it. We need to stay with this book. We need to stay with the old paths. We need to trust God's ways and just keep doing as He's commanded. Why? Because Christ is worthy. Let's begin today by once again reading verses 20 through 26. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known Thee, but I have known Thee, and these have known that Thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them Thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith Thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. In this entire prayer, if you'll remember back, when Jesus prays in the opening, He's praying to be glorified, that He might glorify the Father. When he prays for his disciples, he's praying that they would be sanctified. And when he prays for us, he prays that we would be unified. In order for us to be glorified, to glorify the Father, we must become sanctified. And as we become sanctified, we will become more and more unified. And I think in verses 21 through 23, we can make the case that these three areas are highlighted here. In verse 21, Jesus wants us unified as He and God are unified. In verse 22, Jesus wants us unified in His glory. And in verse 23, Jesus wants us unified in sanctification because He says that they may be perfect in one. 
And I mentioned last week after reading this text that there is no question Jesus' prayer is that we would be unified. Anyone can read that and with no help arrive to that conclusion. Jesus is praying for unification. In verses 21 through 23, we see the word one mentioned five times. That they all may be one. That they also may be one. That they may be one. Even as we are one, that they may be perfect in one. And when a people come together, when a people can become unified, their strength, whether the cause is just or not, well, how do we know this? We can observe this in our nation. We are seeing the opposite take place. We are a very deeply divided people, and our nation is becoming weak as a result. We are called the United States of America. But across the aisles in Congress, there's not much that unites us. We are made up of red states and blue states. Thank God we're the best state. Um, you say, what color is this state? Gold. And we're made up of conservatives and liberals and to a lesser extent, we see hints of this kind of thing, even in our state, because we're known as East River and West River. Obviously, West River is where it's at. And listen, this is nothing new. I'm not saying America's in a good place today, but we were once so divided that we fought an entire civil war over it. 215,000 men died in combat. 450,000 died as a result of combat. On top of that, 655,000 people lost their lives. Some would say we're on the verge of another civil war in our day, and I certainly hope that's not so. But by the grace of God, we were able to come together to some extent after the civil war. And did you know there's even a town in South Dakota that is named in honor of that coming together after the civil war? There's a town about 230 miles west-northwest of here called Gettysburg, South Dakota. And it was founded by Confederate and Union soldiers. And what a testament. These men who were once fighting against each other and firing at each other were now living in the same town in peace. And before the George Floyd protest, on the police department patch, you would find an American flag and a Confederate flag with a cannon in the center just to commemorate what had taken place when the town was founded. And filed underneath the It's a Small World After All section, George Floyd's uncle lives in Gettysburg, South Dakota. In our region, we have an example of how being unified leads to strength. It was at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876 that the Lakota, the Northern Cheyenne, and the Arapaho tribes all combined under the leadership of that great warrior, Crazy Horse, they soundly defeated Custer in the 7th Cavalry Regiment. And we supposedly emerged unified after the Civil War and after the Great Plains Wars, but it's clear that we did not come out of that unified racially. We're still witnessing that today. And listen, I think the vast majority of Americans are not racist. But the answer to the problem is Christ. He's the only answer because in Christ there are no races. 
But we are all one. The Bible says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jews nor Greeks. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ can there be true unity. Aren't you glad God doesn't care about what race you are? God's not the God of the white man. So many feel that way, unfortunately. God sent Christ to die for all mankind. Now, I sure wish our nation was more unified. And while we'll never be completely unified, because this is a free country and we are free to speak our mind and give our opinions, thank God for that. I've long said what America needs is another Cold War. America is like that husband and wife who fight all the time. They seem to hate each other until they have a common enemy. And then it's like, wow, we're friends again. And that's how I feel America's been. It's like we, we need an enemy that we can all rally around in order that we can stop all the infighting. That's what it seems like to me. Some of you are old enough to remember the days of the Cuban Missile Crisis when the Soviets deployed ballistic missiles in Cuba only 90 miles away from Florida. And America was far more unified when we had a common enemy pointing weapons at us. And if you heard John F. Kennedy's speeches in those days, if he was saying those things today, he'd be a Republican. He'd be a conservative Republican in light of the rhinos today. Don't worry, and we're not going to go there. But I do say, let's have another Cold War. Um, not to mention the movies were way better. <laughs> I know we're independent Baptists, none of us watch TV. Look at how unified we were at the outset of the war on terror. It may have been brief, but we were unified. We had a common enemy to rally us together. All of a sudden, some of the infighting that was taking place didn't seem so important. And guess what? The church has a common enemy. Jesus says in this prayer, the world hated them. The world doesn't like us. Our enemy is Satan. If we would rally around that, then all the infighting would fade away. We'd stop pointing fingers internally. And we would focus on who we're supposed to be battling with our focus on Christ. Now, we're not to fight the world by physical means. But we are called to win them. We are called to go into the world and give them the gospel of peace. We are to be armed with the gospel. We're to point... People to the Savior who died for them. Because this thing that we do, it's not about us. It's all about God. What we need to know, what we need to guard against and understand is Satan seeks to get inside and divide and conquer. Because the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. But you know what can? You let somebody get a burr, and they get to infighting. Now we've got issues. Now we've got divisions, and we have schisms, and we have these camps that get set up. We become very divided, and we can fall from within. This church cannot fail from without. It cannot. So how do you know that? I already quoted it. You say, well, what if they drive you underground? It doesn't mean the church has failed. It won't be the first time. 
But so many churches have closed their doors because of infighting. There was no unification. And listen, this mess we see on, on America's church landscape today is not what Jesus set up. It was not this denominational mess where we can't decide what the true church is. God's intent was for there to be local, independent churches. That's what we see in the seven letters to the seven churches in the Revelation. They were all located in Asia, and yet they were all independent. This is why we are an independent church. We are non-denominational, if you will. No one has the authority over us except for Christ. Well, then why the name Baptist, you ask? Well, quick sidetrack and I'll answer that. Because it's a good question. Well, first I'd point out that it's a Bible term. Started with John the Baptist. What did John do? He baptized. This is deep, amen. Look. I mean, now that I'm on full salary, this is what you get. He baptized. And proper baptism by immersion pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ which is the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what we preach. We preach the gospel of Christ. And that's why I do not shy away from the name Baptist. Amen. In our case, the term Baptist, it also defines our doctrinal position when it comes to the way of salvation. We do not believe baptismal regeneration. Isn't that kind of interesting as I think about it? It's like, how come the churches that believe that are not called Baptist? Just interesting to me. And we can answer that because the word Baptist means to immerse to plunge, to dunk. And so we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe in sprinkling or pouring. We, we believe it has to be immersion to picture what Christ did for us. Baptism is an outward profession of what God has already done on the inside in the heart. And it pictures us dying to our old life and being raised again to walk in newness of life. Now, if I'm not careful, we'll talk about Baptist all day. So let me get back to our point here. And that is Satan seeks to divide and conquer. He wants to get within. Jesus said in Luke eleven seventeen, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against itself falleth. I misquoted that, I'm sorry. It says in a house divided against a house falleth. And we know this to be true from what is recorded for us in the Old Testament concerning Israel. They were once unified. They split into two houses and they were brought to desolation. They began to fight against each other. We see this throughout history. We understand with the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, after he died, it was partitioned into four realms, and they began to infight, and guess what? They fell. And churches today aren't as effective as they ought to be because there is so much infighting. And listen, I'm talking about churches of like faith and practice. Listen, my greatest heartache has been other Baptist pastors that hate me for some reason. And then they try to tear down the church. I didn't say the Catholics. It's so sad. Satan is getting an advantage by dividing and conquering. Now, I can't help what takes place in other churches, amen, and despite my efforts, I can't change their opinion. But I can help what happens in here. And we must never become divided internally. And just to be clear, we are not to seek for unity amongst groups that pervert the way of salvation. This isn't, unpopular to, this isn't popular to say today, but I'm going to say it anyway. Many would suggest that, well, that's just a narrow 
position. Listen, when churches compromise salvation through Christ and other key doctrines, according to the Bible, we are not to unite with that. Now, I'm not an ugly Baptist. I don't want to fight people. I'm a pretty laid-back kind of guy for the most part. My wife's shaking her head yes because we're on camera. But we're not to join into this ecumenical movement that's sweeping our land. We're not to unify for unity's sake. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul wrote, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why are we to endeavor to be unified? Well, the answer is given in verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We're unified because there's not a bunch of different ways. And we're not to unify with those that deviate from the truth. I'm talking about corporately. I'm not talking about we're not supposed to win the lost, okay? But Jude teaches this, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jesus clearly wants us in here to be one. So what can we learn from our text about being unified? Well, I think the key is this. What is the basis of our unity? Well, the good news is we aren't left to guess what it is. Jesus prays for us to be one as He and the Father are one. And therefore, I would suggest to you that the basis of our unity is to be as we look to God and see how God and Christ are unified in one. Our unity, the basis of it, is God. How do we get that? We've got to go through Christ. Christ reconciles us to God. And then we become unified with God the Father. And listen again to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice this. He doesn't say endeavoring to make the unity. He says endeavor to keep the unity. You see, Christ gives the unity. He's the one that provides it. He's the one that died for it. And we don't have to make it. We just have to keep it. Unity has already been achieved. And and what this means is we're not to be distracted by these sideline issues that we so often get distracted on that really disrupts our unity. To have standards is a good thing when it's a Bible standard. But to add to that things the Bible doesn't say and to make that the basis of our unity, we're heading for division. Did you see what they wore? Did the Bible say they couldn't wear it? Look, there's nothing wrong with having political opinions. But when we make politics the basis of our unity, we're heading for division. Having opinions on controversial teachings is good. But if it's a teaching which cannot be backed up by book, chapter, verse, and that becomes the basis of our unity, we're heading for divisions. Our unity isn't to be based upon how much you agree with the decisions I make unless they clearly violate the Scriptures. For example, you may not agree with how we handled COVID-19. Well, I think you should have closed. Well, you show me in the Bible where it says I'm supposed to do what you think is most appropriate. And by the way, we did do what the Bible says. The Bible says in time of pestilence, you repent, you pray, you trust God. 
That's what we tried to do. But when people make decision-making, the basis of their unity, we're heading for divisions. We've seen that on a small scale through this. And what people are really saying in situations like these that I just gave as examples, and we know there's many more, what they're saying is this, I'm looking for a church that is just like me. I want to be where everything they do is what I would agree with. I want to be in a church where they're okay with this and that, or, or they're not okay with this or that. And it ends up being the basis of the unity ends up becoming very self-centered if we are not endeavoring to keep the right unity, we can get distracted on all kinds of sideline issues that make our blood boil and all the rest. But listen, that's not the focus. It doesn't really amount to much. I don't care where you're at politically today. I want you to know Christ. Hallelujah. And for this reason, the basis of our unity is to be in God through Christ alone. Now, I think we all would agree that the basis of our unity is to be faith in Christ. But does the Bible give us specific areas where we are to be unified? Would you go to Ephesians chapter 4? And I know I should have had you turn there. I've already quoted it. Ephesians chapter 4. And we could really expand this out if we wanted to look at things like being of one mind and one accord. But I'm just going to stick with this word unity for just a minute. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll look with me in verses 11 through 16, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men in cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And in verse 13, we see that there are areas we are to be unified in. It says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'm not going to get deep into these like we are doing in our Wednesday night series through this book, but I'm just going to quickly highlight these and we'll move on. We're to be unified in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, we must be unified about who Jesus is and about who Jesus, who Jesus was when He was upon this earth. He was virgin born. He was sinless. He was God in the flesh. And we have to be unified on this. We must be unified about His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We must be unified that there aren't many ways to faith in God, but there is one way, and that's through Christ. We are to be unified about becoming a perfect man. We need to be unified in our growing in Christ. We all should be striving for that. We also see we're to be unified and growing unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's very closely related to the previous one. But it goes further because what that's telling us to do is we are to become like Christ. Your maturity in the Lord determines your measure of the fullness of Christ. 
I don't know where you're at in that measure. So we see that the basis of our unity is not only Christ, but we also see that those things in which we're to be unified around are because of Christ. And when we follow this pattern, then we can keep the unity we have in Christ. It's called the unity of the Spirit. This was the lesson that Paul was trying to teach the Corinthians. If you want to join me, I'm going to read from chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul was trying to get them to see that Christ needs to be the object of their unity. And we see in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so he states in verse 10 that there are to be no divisions. None. Verse 11, he explains how it's been told to him, wait a minute, I'm here and there's contentions among you. What were they a result of, the divisions and the contentions? Verse 12 lets us know there were different camps within the church. Now listen, I'm not talking about different cliques. Like it or lump it, every church has cliques. There's going to be a guy that likes a 30-30. There's going to be a guy that likes a M9. Listen, there's just people that are different. Somebody's actually going to like soccer. And and Breck, one day somebody's going to come along that likes soccer with you. Oh, see, y'all are going to end up being buddies. And the rest of us will laugh at you as you kick the ball. And so listen, those things happen. There's people who like hunting and fishing. There's people who like cars, sports. Those things happen, man. We just need, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these camps we get into where we are basing our unity upon an earthly man. Now, what would happen in Corinth if one of these three men took a different direction? Well, those within their camp would follow that direction. If one of them started to teach something different, then people within that camp would start to believe their teaching. We have a whole book that tells us about this kind of thing over in Galatians. If one of them decided they were going to go start the second Baptist church, they would follow. And I've been in towns where there's a third Baptist church. You say, well, that's because the town's big and they have to be further. No, they're on the same corner. And listen, this kind of thing happens today. Many churches, especially smaller country churches that I grew up in, are made up of a couple families, three families. Not a whole lot of people there. One family member gets mad. That entire family branch moves out. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It still happens today. And listen, it happens in reverse fashion. Why are you going to this church of this false doctrine? Well, my grandmother bought this pew right here, and that's where she sat for 50 years. That's a true story. I'm not making that up. Thankfully, he got saved and is now in a Baptist church. Now, it's been my experience that our church has been good in these areas, so I feel like this is more of a reminder for us. We've seen people leave 
But thankfully, the basis of our unity has been Christ. Therefore, no one who has left has taken somebody with them. And we have to endeavor to keep this unity. And I think what helps us a great deal is a lot of us are transplants here. A lot of us, the military brought us here. And this is our family. So as one person gets mad, we're all mad. Amen. So I think that has helped us, but we must endeavor to keep the unity. So Paul asked the question in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Out of the four names he mentions, there's only one worth following. That's Christ. Then in chapter 3, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? It is fleshly, it is carnality to come to church and to say, I'm of that person. God's not going to bless that. And again, I have to reference Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. When we start looking to man as the basis of our unity, you can't have unity of the Spirit because we're being unified through carnal means. The two don't go together. And I understand that having the right pastor is important. The Bible does talk about qualifications and all that. But ultimately, you aren't to be in a church because you really like the pastor on a carnal level. Now, that's hard not to do here. So you're double blessed. But listen, if, if you look at the pastor, what you ought to say is, what's coming out of his mouth agrees with this book. Now, I know I've got to wrap this up, but really quick, back in John chapter 17, we see why our unification with Christ is so important. Why does Jesus pray so much about it right here? Why does He hammer this point? Well, we see in verse 21, Jesus prays there at the last half, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. You see, we need to be one as God and Christ are one. We need to show God's glory. We need to be made perfect or complete because the world needs to believe in Christ. Why on earth would the law seek to be around a bunch of people that can't even figure out what they believe? I'd much rather them say, I disagree with you, but I respect you for standing for something. Why in the world would the lost want to come in here when all they see is infighting and division? Man, I hate drama. Look, if you like dramas, I'm praying God calls you to be a pastor. The world needs to come in and see something different. And then we need to go to the world and show them there's something different. And what that difference needs to be is the unity of the Spirit. And listen, as I, as I try to close this down, never, we, we never need to get unified on these side issues. We never need to be unified around men. But we need to stay unified around God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And may He always be the basis of our unity. Amen. Let's remember this. We have a common enemy. And that enemy's not in here. But man, so many people want to fight about it. 
well, did you see what she had on? And? Well, I don't agree with how they raised their kids. And? Are you paying their bills? My dad always said, if you want an opinion, start paying the bills around here. I never did have an opinion. I mean, we get so wrapped up around stuff. Well, I, I just don't like where they went for vacation. Hey, did you hear that they did this? Man, listen, mind your own business. We have a common enemy, and it's not other believers in Christ. You let the Holy Spirit work out those issues. You let the preaching from the pulpit hit where it needs to hit, and you let God work. You're not called to straighten out that home. You're not called to straighten out their standards. Sometimes being an independent Baptist just cramps my style. But we have a common enemy. One last passage and I'm done. Psalm 133 verses 1 through 3 says this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And you know, there's an exclamation point there. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard and even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And If we had time to break that down, we would clearly see that the ointment and the dew pictures the Holy Spirit. And what God's man needs to do is he needs to get up in the pulpit so full of the Holy Spirit that it is dripping down. And what the people need to do is they need to come in here so full of the Spirit that they're covered in dew. Then we'll have unity. It's not about us. Two years ago, the theme at Silver State was it's all about Him. That's what we need to remember. It's all about Him. Would you pray with me, please?